We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Noel Castellanos, founder and president of the Camino Alliance, joins Jim Lyon to share his experiences on the way of Jesus, justice, and walking alongside our neighbors. Noel Castellanos. Yes, uh, Castellanos. Yes, yes. It sounds right. so like so romantic. It's, yes, it's so oh, elegant. Very, what a name. Very, very. Because Spanish is the language of your home. Is that right? Uh, that's right. Uh, my first language was Spanish, and uh, even though my uh, great grandparents came from Mexico and uh, moved across the border to Texas, and uh, my parents were born in Texas. I was born there, but. Uh, our first language was still Spanish. At home growing up, everyone yeah. was speaking Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt about it. So how did you pick up English? Well, I, I like to say that uh, moving to California, if you can believe it, when we arrived, I was eight years old, and we moved into a community that is uh, called Los Gatos. Los Gatos, I know about that place. Or, or Los Las Gatos. <laughs> yes, yeah. I know yeah. both of those places. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> But we moved there, and um, really miraculously, my, my father, sixth grade education, uh, farm worker, traveling all over the country, wherever the crops were, and then uh, was working at a little uh, juice factory when a huge hurricane hit, like is very common in Texas. And uh, our house was lost. Uh, we were living in the... Uh, Civic Center shelter mm. for a few days, like every, and you're just a child. You're saying you're yeah, about eight. Eight, wow. and uh, so we end up. Um, my 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 dad decides we're gonna good time to leave. Let's go to California. I think he'd been thinking about making a change, so he uh, taped up the '57 Rambler station wagon and uh, wow. made sure it uh, it could get down the road, and we we just. He decided we're going to pick up and leave. And uh, the story that I, I tell is that we uh, tuck in behind a Greyhound bus because the rain is so torrentous. Yeah. And uh, and so that bus leads us out of Texas into California. And All the Greyhound. The par- parting of the waters, you know, but it was a Greyhound. And uh, and after being in California for three weeks, my father gets a job at General Motors on the assembly line, which changed our life uh, economically. Because it was uh, a good paying job. Yeah, good paying job. And uh, obviously for somebody who is recently a, a migrant worker, to go to a job like that was really amazing. And not just a good wage, but also benefits and yeah, healthcare. To, and yeah, so today, uh, 80 uh, he just turned 88, and uh, the pension uh, that uh, got him through retirement and all, you know, it really created a different uh, economic experience for us, uh, even though we still had to deal with a lot of other things. <laughs> yeah, but you're telling me the story because that's how you picked up English, because that yeah, transition exactly. out of this, what shall we call it, uh, 
more insular culture yeah. on the border of Mexico in Texas on the yeah. Texas side took you to California where suddenly you're thrown into the mix. And uh, what I started to say is when I got there and moved into Los Gatos, uh, there was very few La- Latinos, Mexicans there. Uh, and and we didn't know any better than to move into one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the whole uh, Bay Area. But we rented a little one-room apartment over a garage. And uh, so first day of third grade, uh, I get put into an ESL class. And I had to learn English very quickly because uh, it, it was a really difficult transition. Kids are making fun of you and... You know, they just, uh, I was the guy that they got to pick on because of you that language. The, the standout for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I like to uh, say that uh, uh, because of my experience with this one freckled face, red haired guy who would chase me down with a group of friends uh, often after school just to you know, you know, give me trouble. Uh, so if I see somebody who looks like that and I kind of get a little nervous, <laughs> still, it, it's, it's still, a flashback. I get that. I totally get <laughs> to that. third grade. <laughs> Don't ask me about the guy in my eighth grade gym class. But anyway, right, right, right. <laughs> every now and then you have a, a, a yeah, moment a moment that takes you back in time. Exactly. But that, that rich culture yeah. uh, of, of your family of origin yeah. uh, in the United States, but still deeply grounded in Latin American culture, yeah. and uh, then transferred to California, which has its own uh, unique vibe. I mean, I was struck by your family suffering a devastating economic loss consequent to a natural disaster in Texas, Yeah, that your dad decides, you know, let's go to California. I mean, there, there's, there's an epic, isn't there, yeah. uh, in American life? Uh, I'm guessing this would be about the late 60s or early 70s yeah, when uh, you're making yeah, this move. Yeah, it was uh, uh, mid-60s, okay, yeah, so, late 60s. You know, where California was yeah. was the dream destination, wasn't it? Yeah, People yeah. dreamed of going to California and uh, seeing the ocean and the mountains and the opportunity. It was all there, and that's what your family found. Yeah, we did. We did, and, uh, and that uh, $14,000 house that we we would uh, he works at General Motors, but my dad would take us out every Saturday and Sunday, and we would go pick strawberries in Watsonville, mm-hmm. where Cesar Chavez was mm-hmm. organizing, and that was to uh, get the down payment for this little house that is worth a million dollars today. today. Yeah, the same house, same house. Just the values have gone up so <clears throat> astronomically. They don't own it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. Who knew can pay the taxes for it? But, exactly. But that journey brought you uh, to where you are today, honestly, yeah. Noel, it seems to me. And yeah. uh, you have a deep, deep passion for your Anglo world mm. and your Latin world. Mm. Mm. And today you're, you're still serving as the founder and the leader of something called the Camino Alliance. So right. let, let's just start there. Yeah. Camino. Yeah. All right. So that's that's a... A Spanish word. Yes. I, I think about a street. The, is it El Camino Real Yeah, uh, yeah. in the Bay? California, it, right yeah. there, right uh, it, the old mission road where the missionaries uh, would uh, build missions all the okay. way up and down uh, uh, California. That, that's the name of that kind of passage, <clears throat> yeah. right? Yeah, but uh, also for us uh, who follow uh, Jesus, right, uh, uh, one of his most famous lines is "Yo soy el camino," I am the way. Ah, uh, camino means the way. The way, uh-huh. so it can be translated the way in the Spanish Bible. That's the way it's translated. So, um, so there is a a lot of 
meaning for that, but I think uh, the deepest and really uh, a lot of people are tired of me because everything's about Buen Camino. And uh, and it's really a, a, an experience. Uh, I, I took a sabbatical five years ago for uh, six months. And uh, for one month, I went on a journey, a spiritual uh, pilgrimage that's called the Camino de Santiago. Uh-huh. Of St. James. Yeah, St. James in Spain. So uh, I, I uh, decided I was going to go do that uh, uh one month, uh, 500 mile uh, walk. And um, somehow my daughter, who was 22 at the time, she says, I'm coming with you. Uh, okay, I didn't invite you, but okay, you know, <laughs> if you have a daughter, I, you know what I'm talking about. But then uh, my, I had a son who's a couple years older. He, he decides, uh, hey, I'm going to go out with you all and we're going to. Uh, I'll just say goodbye. You know, I'll see you off on the on the road to the Camino. I, I got a week vacation, so I'm going to go. While we're there, uh, the last night before we leave, uh, he and my daughter go out to just hang out, and and she tells him, "You hate your job. You're unhappy. You don't know what the heck you want to do with your life. Why don't you just quit and come with us?" Well, she talks him into it. So and they, those- both of them. Both of them, you. yeah. So we did that journey. It was life changing. Well, and, well, let's just talk about that for a minute because I so I didn't realize you were going to bring this up, but yeah, um, I've been reading up on the Camino de Santiago, oh. which Spanish is the Way of Saint James. Yes, yes. And the idea is that uh, his tomb traditionally yeah. is in Spain, and this is a kind of pilgrimage that people have taken yeah. from the ninth century in yeah. Europe. So. Uh, I didn't introduce you to Matt Derby, but Matt Derby is our video jockey today okay. with our Peck Essence. So he's pulling up images of things yeah. that we talk about and uh, yeah, check us out. Is. So there's kind of a map. That, and did you actually walk this? It's about 500 miles? 500 miles, yeah. With your son and daughter? Yeah, yeah. And how does that work? You you walk as far as you can walk and then you sleep on the road? Or how does that work? <laughs> well, the, the whole uh, over a thousand years, they've gotten pretty good at this, right? Yes. So... <laughs> Uh, really, the whole uh, economy of that region of Spain is built around this uh, now more than ever. But uh, basically, uh, there's a lot of uh, guidebooks that will tell you along this path, here's where you can go, uh, how, how many days you want to take to oh, do it. So you can kind of 31 days is what we did. Okay. And so for that uh, kind of a, a timeline, uh, it'll just tell you, here's where you stop here and you know, the, the third day you stop in Pamplona, the, the running of the bulls. Place, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. place. And, and then there are little, uh, they're called albergues or little hostels mm-hmm. that are uh, usually run either by the municipality or they're private ones, but uh, they cost uh, 5 to 10 euro uh, a so night. Very inexpensive. Very inexpensive. And uh, it, it just... Uh, Everybody's kind of in that same boat, and so you're meeting hundreds of people, and and you develop uh, conversations oh, along the way. And- oh, I, I can't even tell you. Uh, I mean, really, there is a book in there somewhere mm-hmm. of uh, all the experiences. Uh, but but again, usually it's uh, it's been traditionally it's been a spiritual pilgrimage, and either you went on it to pay homage to uh, Saint James, or you were encouraged by 
somebody who you owed, uh, who you'd wronged. <laughs> hey, you're going to do this kind of a penance. penance. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so everyone, they say, uh, very common saying on the Camino, everyone here has come for a reason. And uh, Martin Sheen and his son uh, Emilio made a movie called The Way a number of years ago that really spiked the popularity of this, uh, of, of America, you know, U.S. Yes, Americans, yes. North Americans going there. But uh, basically, uh, you, you meet people who are going through crises, their mother died, their father has cancer, they're recovering, uh, you they're know. searching for something. And on my journey, you know, so I just got divorced. Uh, my uh, my job just fell apart. A guy from Mexico City, uh, his business collapsed. And so... Uh, all these stories, stories are knit together on the way. And you hear them all. Yeah, you wow. hear them all because you've got a lot of time walking on that Camino. <laughs> Yeah, so, well, yeah. I mean, this sounds fascinating. Yeah, it of course, was unbelievable. You speak Spanish anyway, so sí. that makes it probably a little easier. Sí, pero el español de España es uh, un poco diferente que con, uh, con los, you know, the T's. Uh, it's it's a, a little different. Oh, very different accent. But you can yeah. make your way. Oh, I mean, sure. You can, they know what you're saying, and you pick up what yeah. they're saying, even though it's, it's different. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, kind of like me. Growing up in Seattle and going to the Deep South. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well I tell you, but uh, I'm not sure, though, uh, Alabama or Boston, who I can understand uh, <laughs> They both least. have the, their uh, own uh, definition exactly. of the language, don't they? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that this idea of the way, I mean, yeah. you, t- you took a sabbatical. Yeah. and uh, So having described that a little bit, I just yeah. have to ask you, what would be one of your great takeaways from that 31-day journey, yeah. a lesson or a life changed? Yeah. Uh, the Camino is hard. The Camino is hard. And uh, when I when I came back, uh, full of blisters and, uh, you know, the, the wear and tear of having to get up every single day for 31 days and walk uh, 20-something miles, uh, it's, it's just, you, you realize that's, that's an analogy for life, uh, that the Camino, even as followers of Christ is, is we, we, we've got this romanticized and, and our, our, an Americanized kind of idea that suffering is not going to be part of our life if we're doing okay with God, if, especially if, you know, we have our quiet time and we're <laughs> yeah. uh, going to church on Sunday. <laughs> if I play the disciplines he, right. Right. He's going to bless you beyond the possibility of anything happening to you. And and the reality is that yeah the Camino's hard and and uh, the Camino is is uh, is uh, is also uh, it's a com- it brings people to a common experience and it's a great equalizer great equalizer and on the Camino you're you're going to encounter people who are not like you I mean you meet people from all over the world I think that's the that's the uh, not only the Christian story, but it's the mandate. You know, go into all nations and go and cross into the Samarias and the Judeas, and uh, we're we're called to be uh, bridge builders and barrier busters and uh, go into places that are difficult. And so, yeah, I think I think, uh, and and then you come back and you read the Bible in a whole different way because you realize that. Uh, mm-hmm. That that's the call of of a believer is to be on the way with Jesus and 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 if you want to describe how early Christians described our faith, that's that's what they would say. They're people of the way, and uh, it, it's a uh, it's not it connects a, the dots really in a oh amazing experiential way. Yeah, 
while you're on the way yeah. for 31 days, 500 miles a foot, did you ever have a moment where you thought like, you know, uh, I'm not doing this whole thing. I, I, oh, I'm turning, oh. I, I, this is over. I got, yeah. the, I got the point. Yeah, one of the most significant things that happened, uh, and I never would have imagined, but uh, as a dad, I, must, I was 55 when I did that Camino. And so uh, you're, you're the guide for your kids. Well, my, my, especially my son, who's a really great athlete and great shape. And but my daughter's young and same, sure, you sure. know. But uh, probably the first 10 days in the morning, I'd wake up and I'd say, Stefan, you guys are going to have to go without me. I, 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 can't wait. I can't make it another day. I can't day. keep it up. No, no, yeah. can't, can't do another day. And he'd say, no, Dad, you can do it. Let's just, you know, just uh, take care of your feet, do what you got to do, but we'll be all. And so I take off another day. Next day, same thing. Guys, I, I don't know if I can do another day, you know. So that vulnerability and, and that kind of being really dependent on your, on your kids, uh, that flipping of the roles that we had played for so many years, I think changed the dynamic of our relationship, which was was really good, but it uh, it was really powerful. Well, and that's another lesson. It seems, yeah. If you're going to make the way, and it is hard, yeah. Uh, don't travel alone. Yeah, that's exactly. The, the power can't. of encouragement yeah. or company or people who want to go the same way, yes. even though it's difficult. Yeah. All yeah. right. Now I have to ask. So you do all this, yeah, and you get to the end. Yeah. What's at the end? What, yeah. What's it like? Wow, yeah, this is so worth the walk, or yeah. no, the journey was what yeah. the trip was about. No, it's, again, very interestingly, uh, almost all Spaniards will do the Camino at some point to get a because the, you know what's the what's the payoff, right? Yeah, well, right. you can say I walked five hundred miles, like I did the Camino, but there's something called the Compostela. Mm-hmm. Compostela is, is is a little stamp, a certificate that you get if you complete. But uh, in Spain. In order to get the Compostela, is uh, is you have to go about eighty miles. So most Spaniards will at least do that in their lifetime, so that they can get that certificate. So there's a little town eighty miles away from the end of Santiago where you've been walking for four hundred and twenty miles, and here's these fresh blood people coming up, and they're all happy, and they're just starting, you know, and and so. Uh, they join in, and there's a little bit of resentment. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> yeah, <right>. Until you, <laughs> you you watch them struggle up the first hill. Because they're they're back where you were yeah. at the start. Yeah. and we're just walking right past them, you know. Yeah. And so that happens, but then the very last day, there are busloads of people that come and get dropped off about, half a mile outside of town, and they walk in with flags and banners and obnoxious. The wannabes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And we purebloods that have just walked 500 miles. The people who earned it. We are scorning and we're, you know, just uh, just so disgusted with what we're seeing. But you enter in, and it's re- uh, really amazing because it's like most European squares, right? There's the square and the cathedral, but here's the, the Cathedral of Santiago, and uh, and that's where every all the pilgrims that are coming in, they all go and they just hang out and celebrate on the square. And There's a certain triumph about oh, it. Oh, yeah. And I the, mean, 
Like it was worth it after all. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's a gratefulness, and then you go to mass. Uh, to that's the culmination, which I love that because it is a uh, it's a spiritual uh, journey uh, and in its root, and and I think. Uh, even people that never go to church or they didn't do it because of anything spiritual. They're still they're, drawn into the Mass. They're in, they're, they're, they participate because that's part of the ritual. And so, yeah, it's a very powerful uh, way of, uh, of creating an experience to help people uh, really understand what uh, the faith journey is all about. But uh, but then uh, you know yeah we we kind of celebrate and uh, it, it's a uh, it, it's it's a little anticlimactic in the in the sense of you, you have I we we ended up with about thirty forty people that we'd gotten to know along the way, and we're all kind of now best friends still these yeah, years yeah, later yeah a lot of us are still uh, uh, more than others some you know yeah, but sure. but uh, but then having to say goodbye to that. You know, it's difficult because for many people, that's the deepest kind of connection right. you've ever felt. Uh, but yeah, it, it was a it was life changing. So coming back uh, for me, the Camino has been a theme because it, it really describes um, what you hope to engage with with a group of people. Uh, a friend of mine in Latin America likes to say the kingdom is built with friends, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of a lot of folks, you know, would, will have a saying like that. But but I think um, I think that's that's what I uh, have really sought to do over the almost forty years of doing ministry. Um, and um, most of the friends that we've been walking with have been people who care about justice, care about a deep walk with Jesus, care about the poor, you know, the vulnerable, and uh, have have uh, committed to understanding uh, maybe a little less clear-cut, simple version of the story, right? That uh, ties everything up in a bow and says, "Man, isn't isn't this faith thing so perfect and easy?" And and you realize, you know, uh, it's quite a powerful thing to be on a journey with people over the years. We know that the journey is hard. Oh, man. Not, yeah, well, exactly. You know, this this part of our conversation <laughs> right. was launched in part because I was asking you uh, about Camino Alliance. the Com- Camino Alliance, and yeah. I still want to get there. But yeah. having heard your story of the Camino de Santiago, yeah. talk to me about your Camino experience with Jesus. Yeah. I mean, because... Jesus is the way. Yeah, uh, that's the quote. And uh, the way is hard. Yeah. How did you intersect with Jesus? How, just give me that life uh, snapshot. Yeah, like like most uh, of us, um, that um, I, I would say one of the characteristics of the Latino culture is that we're, we come to uh, engage the world. Less through reason, although you know when when I say that is not, it's not to say that it's not thinking, and not re, you know there isn't a rational side, but it, it's really through story and through uh, kind of experience and and uh, for for me, it was the the great pain that I felt in my life as a young boy. Growing up in uh, in this family where uh, both of my parents are the oldest, right? Uh, one of uh, my mom 
uh, has uh, 11 brothers and sisters. Uh, my grandmother gave birth to 18, oh okay, but uh, not all of them made it. Yes. My dad's, um, <clears throat> there's nine on his side, so big families. And uh, I'm the oldest in, in my family. My wife's the oldest, so we kind of draw together. <laughs> <laughs> there's a little, uh, I don't know, there's something there that is probably unhealthy, uh, but <laughs> we're drawn to one another. But, uh, but I, th- I think like a lot of families that um, when you think about uh, immigrant men and, and, uh, especially, um, and, and my father was born here, right? So he is a U.S. citizen. He's never uh, had to uh, deal with the whole uh, threat Process of, of citizenship deportation, yeah. citizenship, or whatever. But but yet, as a Latino back in Texas, where uh, when you think of the Jim Crow South, uh, there were many laws that uh, that or, or not laws, but practices that prohibited uh, Mexicans cultural boundaries exactly from entering a restaurant or doing this or you know. Uh, for sure, the the prejudice, the racism, and all that existed in in that time, but to to know that uh, that you you're seen as less than right that I think that uh, is a huge uh, kind of uh, burden, uh, and then you have the the reality that uh, my family hasn't. There's not a history of deep religious connection, so there's not a, an upbringing of uh, of training and you know how, how do you how do you walk with God? How do you be a good how do you father? Cope with being yeah, disenfranchised? Yes, yeah, so all those yes. kind of things, and 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 then the 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 responsibility of uh, of the oldest uh, to uh, uh, you know you're 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 a wage earner for the family uh, right away and. All of those things that, that don't excuse uh, the kind of um, uh, things that that creates in the life of a, of a Latino uh, man like my father, but uh, but you know he um, he and my mom struggled tremendously. There's an incredible family tension. Conflict, they struggled in their relationship. In their relationship. Uh, a lot of conflict, and and I think that 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 idea of of, of living with conflict, okay, th- th- that's been probably the wound that has uh, stayed deep within me for uh, all my life is um, watching uh, conflict being lived out in very negative ways, and uh, I- interestingly. Um, uh, my parents, who throughout my childhood, I, I was absolutely first certain they were going to be divorced, then hoped they would be divorced <laughs> because I just, you, you know. You dreaded the conflict. Oh, yeah, it's just like there's nothing good here. You guys are going to kill each other, you know, and, and it's not, not healthy for anybody. But miraculously, uh, in the middle of that, my, uh, my football coach uh, in high school uh, white guy from uh, played football at Stanford and and uh, was a young life leader, uh, and he just had a whimsical way of just loving and re- relating to uh, you know all of his students, and he somehow got myself and five other guys to go to a, a young life camp, 
And we went for the girls. We went to get out of town. We went to party. We didn't go for Jesus. You know, we, we just for good times. Yeah, we were not church kids at all. And, uh, but, uh, had a very, very deep encounter with the story of this, you know, turns out, you know, uh, very much a, a blonde, blue eyed Jesus surfer dude, which, you know, in California has, <laughs> makes sense. But, uh, but I, I still, I, I, you know, the, the, the kind of, um, way that Jesus was talked about, the visible expression of an invisible God. If you, you know, hey, how do we talk about knowing God who's eternal and invisible? But hey, let's look at this person, Jesus Christ, because the story is that, that God enters the world in human form and he does that to communicate his love uh, for us. And uh, that, that really, um, that story never had been uh, something that connected to me personally, even though I grew up going to church every now and then. We were not a really faithful Roman Catholic family, but we were Roman Catholic. And um, so religion didn't have a big part in our family until that point. And I come back from the, this camp and, and uh, uh, for, for uh, all reality, it wasn't like I was this zealot, uh, you know, on fire Christian, but I, I, I knew, I knew, but it was real. <laughs> it was for you. just enough yeah. to say, uh, I gotta, you know, something, I gotta think about things differently. I gotta do some things differently. And my coach walked with me and he ended up helping me to, uh, apply to a few Christian colleges, uh, which I had no idea that, what that, that was or existed. that they existed. <laughs> But I ended up going to a little school, Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington, and I showed up. I'd never been there before. I ended up going up there with $400 that I scraped up, and uh, I get to the table and getting ready to register, and, you know, they tried to tell me I owed a bunch more. I said, this is all I have. <laughs> I said, I, I, I said, I'll go home. You know, I mean, I, I, I want to stay, but this is... So they kept going behind the curtain. Huh. Okay, let me go see what I can do. And uh, I, I know Anderson University, uh, you, you, yes, have, yes, those, you yes. have a curtain. Oh, you know. Every school's yeah. got a curtain. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll come, it's like a used car thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. And you finally come back, and, and somehow uh, they let me... You struck a deal. Yeah, got, got in, and... Uh, and it was it was a life. The Camino's hard, right? Yeah. I was I was one of uh, two Mexican Americans in the whole school, the whole and and the uh, other one, the, the this young this gal, she insisted she was not Latina. You know, she, she didn't want to be. No, no, no. She was she was very much no, no. That's not. Yeah. So I had to I had to deal with that, and uh, so a very unlikely place for me to end up. But uh, what happened is I started getting involved with Young Life there as a as as a volunteer, and had an amazing experience just uh, uh, reaching out to kids, a lot of them not like me. Uh, but again, in, in God's providence, I worked in a ministry in a part of town where there was a few African-American kids, but there, there was a, a lot of new Laotian immigrants that were coming in. Mm -hmm. So I started working with all these Laotian kids and uh, beginning to... Uh, uh, diversify young life uh, that way, and because uh, uh, Spokane generally hasn't been too diverse, <laughs> right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. 
but uh, but but it was a it was an experience where I, I really encountered Christ in a very deep way uh, while I was there. Got to know some great friends and people that uh, helped me in that journey, and uh, it stuck. Yeah, yeah, it really did, and and uh, through that, uh, kept going back home and. Um, my mother became a believer, my brothers and sisters, and then at the age of 70, my father becomes a believer. Wow. Okay, it took him a while. Yeah, but yeah. worth waiting for. Yeah. <laughs> and, and my mother, bless her heart, she stayed hung in there. And, uh, and, 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 and now at 88, you know, he's been walking with Jesus for the last 18 years or so. And, uh, and, and man, uh, um, his faith and his commitment and, uh, the change, uh, not only in him, but in my parents' marriage. The whole family obvious. dynamic was altered. Oh, totally, totally. By and the way. By the way. Yeah, by the, by the way. Yeah. And I know, and I know that there's a lot of story here to unpack, uh, from there to, the Camino Alliance. Right. Let me jump back to the Camino Alliance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think uh, our friend Mattis pulled up uh, uh, for our viewers uh, a screenshot from yeah. the uh, webpage. Right. It's a really fascinating enterprise uh, yeah. that you have established. Uh, it's just a few years on now, right? Yeah, a couple. Yeah. And and as I was looking at it, I I was struck by a statement that it exists to help address the immigration problem, the crisis at the southern border of the United States, by going to the point of origin mm -hmm. of the crisis, which really are, are all of those communities, those towns and cities and yeah. countries south of the border. And I realize that it's more than that, but I mean, that was a starting place. Yeah. Yeah. Give us a, a sense of where that came from and why yeah. does that matter? Yeah. Well, I, for uh, really all my ministry uh, life here in the U.S. has been working in U.S. Latino communities, living in uh, that part of San Jose where I grew up. And then uh, 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 my first ministry assignment was uh, in San Francisco in the Mission District, where there was uh, a lot of Central Americans. That was my first encounter with Salvadorians that were fleeing the war and coming to the U.S., and then moving back to the east side of San Jose, where Cesar Chavez uh, lived, where when he wasn't living uh, in the uh, in prison, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in jail, <laughs> when he wasn't fasting or uh, doing yeah. some of the other work in in more of the uh, in the agricultural areas, uh, moved into a neighborhood called Sal Si Puedes, get out if you can, is the name of this east side neighborhood. Really, that's what it's called. Yeah, that's that's what it's called, and. But you know, typical urban Mexican American community, and and uh, second, third generation kids just like me, who kind of uh, you know have grown up in in the realities of what that's all about, and um, and and then uh, after meeting John Perkins, uh, who is just a great icon and the founder of this. Uh, a movement called the Christian Community Development Association, uh, moved to Chicago 35 years ago to move into a Mexican neighborhood. Uh, I was uh, I went to a, to the very first CCDA conference that John had organized. There was about 80, 100 people. And while I was there in this black community called Lawndale, uh, where the where the uh, the conference was held. Um, I stumble into the neighborhood next door, uh, La Villita, or Little Village, 
And I like to say that I discovered this neighborhood the way Columba discovered, <laughs> Columbus discovered America. <laughs> you know, it was already there, but... Uh, you weren't uh, really looking for it, but there you found yeah, it. Yeah, there yes. it was, and, and I, I discovered it, you know. Uh, but uh, I, uh, I was just fascinated by 100,000 um, Mexican descent residents and a lot of recent immigrants and predominant Spanish-speaking language, and it, it's just, and then the urban feel of Chicago compared to California, yes, right? Yes, yes. Brick buildings and back alleys, and all of the things that you 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 know you visualize when you think about Chicago. Well, uh, fell in love with that community right there, and came back, and and uh, providentially, my wife is from Huntsville, Alabama. She's a good Sicilian Catholic, right, girl, <laughs> okay. and uh, and so uh, the, the when when we began to talk about do we stay in California, or would you be open to moving to Chicago to this Mexican community there, and uh, you know okay that's a ten hour drive. To back home, you know, to Huntsville. It seemed a lot closer. It seemed like the Lord uh, was in it, right? <laughs> and, and and I think that's that's the way the Lord works uh, so often. And uh, but yeah, we ended up moving to Chicago, and uh, and again, um, working with immigrants once they get here, right? Uh, with Camino Alliance, uh, what I uh, began to reflect on is. Uh, I've been working on this side, uh, on, on the work of integration into society and church and all for so many years, but why do we have this constant migration out of uh, a region of the world that's so close to us uh, that it's almost impossible uh, to avoid because of what the reality is uh, for many, many people in terms of poverty, corruption, and then in recent years, uh, one of the mo more fascinating stories is that uh, through the deportation of many young uh, um, Salvadorian and Mexican, but, but Central American kids that had to join a gang to survive in L.A., they started getting deported back to El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras, uh, and uh, all of a sudden uh, the Mara the Siocho, you know, the gangs, the, the 13. Uh, the culture um, of gang belonging and also uh, power. That, it, you're saying it was exported it was from, exported from communities from, in the United States to Central America. Exactly. Where it took deep root. Yeah, deep root. And, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, along with the, the many, many uh, decades of... Um, of uh, political unrest and um, and poverty, economic uh, destitution, and everything. Now you have this violent uh, community, drugs, uh, right? All, all of it kind of comes together. A, perfect storm. A toxic cauldron of yeah. And, and so, so the idea that began to grip my heart is, um, it, it, it if if people want to migrate. You know, I think God puts that in the hearts of people to explore and to go and seek a better life. That's part of the human spirit, and we've seen it all through the Bible, right? But as as the example of of uh, of uh, Joseph and the first family having to flee uh, to escape uh, 
uh, political genocide, infanticide. Physical threat. Yeah, physical threat. That is the, that's part of that story. And, and so, like, what can we do to, uh, like, we, we'd say this in the U.S. a lot, talking about the philosophy of Christian community development. You know, uh, instead of just taking people uh, out of the river that are drowning and pulling them out at the bottom of the river, why don't you go upstream and find out who's pushing them in? Well, we would do that here in the U.S., and we'd, you know, we'd use that analogy to kind of try to get us to get to the root causes of what's happening here in the U.S. But I did not see many uh, U.S. Uh, ministries uh, really moving towards let's address this immigration crisis on the southern side of the border. And to me, my whole ministry um, really ha- has been focused on a, on a, uh, a theological uh, kind of premise of God's love for the uh, preferential uh, concern for the poor and, and the marginalized and and uh, and you know Latin America has this incredible history of liberation theology, Catholic. Uh, evangelicals, uh, that's not that's something. Not part of the language. No, and it's not part of the ethos or the something that's really been embraced uh, in, in many ways. But um, so the idea of saying uh, the things that I've learned here, uh, I, I, I want to. I just want to examine that. Uh, in light of what the reality is in Latin America. And I think I've, ha- I've been really careful to not to go and impose, uh, the views of what, uh, the solutions, you know, that's the last thing, uh, people need is, uh, bringing in solutions. But what, what happens is, uh, you know, I've had a lot of opportunity, uh, to just share, uh, a, a, the little diagram that I, uh, uh, write about in my book uh, where the cross meets the street. You know, very simple. The cross with this holistic approach, where you know, uh, if you're incarnate in the community and you begin to, uh, you know, what's the role of the church in the kingdom? Well, you, you, you proclaim the gospel and you form leaders and disciples and demonstrate compassion, and then you begin to do development and restoration, a la Nehemiah and uh, Jerusalem. The, the city of Shalom, you know, you, you, you begin to engage in uh, the structures and the economic, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, issues that are going on, and you build a city of Shalom. But then when you do that, you realize that uh, uh, whenever you put the poor at the center of uh, your ministry efforts and concern, what you'll discover is that uh, there's something much deeper going on. Is that there's a, there's a injustice. There's a there's a, a need to confront the systems, the institutions, the the strongholds of injustice. That uh, I think uh, the evil one does not want those to be let go because it, it creates all of the dysfunction that it's uh, the foundation of us mischief oh, in a way. Oh, absolutely, and and then. You know, you just think, how in the world can you uh, can you uh, only talk about uh, getting your uh, you know your green card into heaven and everything's going to be okay, and not deal with the issues that are really 
uh, uh, very, very prominent in communities. Are, the things that are robbing life here. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Matt just pulled up a, a cover of the book yeah. where, where the cross meets the street. And yeah. it's, the subtitle is, What Happens in the Neighborhood When God is at the Center? And yeah. you're describing, uh, Noel, it seems to me, basic principles, no matter where you are in the world, yeah, yeah. Uh, that you learned in yeah. the United States working yeah. in urban centers, yeah. but now also seeing well, those same ideas, the same concept framing yeah. could work south of the border too yeah. and actually stem the tide of people being disrupted from their home places yeah. because of all the hopelessness yeah. of uh, their place of origin. Yeah. In fact, uh, I, I just had uh, 75% of the book translated into Spanish and uh, the other 25% will be done in the next month. But uh, I'm using it for a class that I'm teaching on la iglesia y la comunidad, the church and the community. And uh, But, but you know, uh, it, it's amazing. The same, uh, I, I think that the, the same uh, uh, hermeneutic, right, of a God who puts the poor at the center, right, uh, that is as radical in Latin America as it is here because we have exported our views of the gospel to Latin America and to other parts of the world. And if you look at some of the deep, deep uh, disconnect that we find in, in uh, evangelical circles in Latin America in relationship to uh, experiencing the same kind of uh, popularist kind of issues that we have in the U.S., they're happening in Latin America as well because we they, there's not a theology that is rooted in in uh, in, in the reality of of uh, the vulnerable and uh, you know when when you think about I, a lot of times people push back on that right God loves everybody I say absolutely but when you do an honest reading of the scripture you've got to ask the question now why launch the ministry out of Galilee, why become incarnate as a Galilean Jew? Why is so much of the story about the pure religion, the widow, the orphan, uh, the stranger? And, and then you kind of step back and say, okay, well, how many, how many billions? Eight billion people that we have on the planet today? How many people live like us in, in the U.S. of those eight billion? Right. I mean, uh, how many people are really on the, you could honestly say legitimately, are living on the margins. And so the gospel of this kind of God and this story that told from that vantage point is so relevant for our world today. And in fact, I would say it's the only relevant story that is going to touch the, the majority of peoples in our world. So, I mean, Noel, you're, you're referencing the scripture, and I'm just uh, I'm putting this to you. You're a person who, when you made a decision uh, to take the Camino of Jesus, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that you also have embraced the Scripture as authoritative. You, you're yeah. seeing that as the anchoring guidebook yeah. for the way. Yeah. And, and help us, take us to your reading of that Scripture, which has put yeah. the poor in the middle. Now, you've, you've shared already, you know, the kind of the, the obvious, yeah. but it's not obvious to everyone yeah. uh, because we do have, we're all formed by our culture and our yeah. upbringing. And uh, I mean, yeah. every expression of the gospel has in some way been, uh, shall we say, proscribed yeah. by our experience. Yeah. Unpack for us your reading of the <clears throat> scripture, 
yeah. informed by your experience too, but also by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Is the is a ministry to the poor wherever they are a key to experiencing gospel power? Let me put it that way. Yeah, I think it, it's an honest uh, revelation of who, how God reveals Himself in, in, in our world, as as a God who sides with the vulnerable. Uh, so you know, you you, you take the, the story, uh, and and uh, you know, you can go back all the way to the story of Abraham, where you know, I, it's it's fascinating that God chooses this very wealthy individual and says, "I'm going to set you apart," and uh, and something's going to happen as if you take this invitation on. Uh, you're uh, you're you're going to become the father of not just the, you know a, a peculiar one peculiar people, but you're gonna you're going to be the father of all of these nations, you know, of every nation, and and your wealth you're going to see it differently because now you're going to be called to be a blessing to other people, right? You're going to redistribute your wealth in a way that you never imagined that you would uh, want to. And, and so Abraham, you know, it, uh, God doesn't reject this wealthy person, but he has to confront or interject the, the value of the fact that everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. And so here we have an example of, a, of an individual who doesn't do it perfectly, but who uh, is, a, is, is really one of the first uh, kind of, you know, uh, relocators or mm-hmm. uh, this person who kind of uh, gets— Reinvents con- himself in a way. Yeah, yeah, gets converted and says, man, I don't know if I need all of this stuff, you know, I, 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 and if I have it, it's to share, it's to, it's to uh, provide for others. And then the whole ethic of uh, of the the people of Israel was how you treat the stranger, how you treat the widow, the orphan, uh, the the whole relational fabric, uh, the concept of jubilee. Uh, you know, which uh, uh, I was talking to a young man who is studying economics at, at a, a Christian school, and uh, he's all excited because they want to. You know, you've been learning all of this stuff about. A Christian view of economics, and I said, "Oh, so you studied the Jubilee? Well, what's the Jubilee? I'd never heard of that." Okay, how do you how do you how do you learn about the economic uh, you know viewpoint of the kingdom of God and 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 not understand that into the fabric of God's relationship with the covenant people is that you're you're going to set up a system that addresses chronic poverty and and redemption chronic and debt. Uh, debt and yeah you know uh and 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 yeah you you might have land and you might have stuff but but people through all kinds of hardship and stupidity and bad decisions you lose it and then you're uh, a permanent part of the underclass well god says every 50 years that's going to be reversed. we're going to have a restart you get a reboot. I like that concept. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. But, but no, I mean, I, I think so. So there's that story. But, but then uh, nothing more radical than the person of Jesus. Okay. So now God uh, is uh, we. So yeah, we're uh, the Jewish people are expecting a, a Messiah, a Savior. But uh, what? What we encounter is that uh, this Savior is 
uh, comes in the form of a Galilean Jew. Okay, so when when Jesus enters the word the world, Emmanuel, you know he he, he uh, his parents are both from the tribe of, uh, of David. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Mary and her family, uh, are in, uh, in, uh, Galilee. And somehow, you know, in, in that, in that whole, uh, uh, unfolding of scripture, you know, the prophecies about he's going to be a Galilean and, uh, you know, um, um, uh, that, which probably was, Nobody understood what the heck that was going to be all about, but all of a sudden Jesus uh, is born in a situ- in a way that's so scandalous, right? Uh, he's betrothed to be married in a little town of maybe fifty families, okay, maybe a hundred Nazareth, and um, his fiance turns up pregnant. No, no way to cover this up. No, I mean, everybody knows. Scandal. And that's the way God chooses. I mean, why do it that way, you know? I mean, what a, what a crazy way to enter the world. What's he saying to us by the way in which he constructed his entrance? Oh, I mean, you got to say uh, God is doing everything he can to show us how he is for the outsider. He's for the, for the embarrassed, for the scandalized, for those that are uh, really rejected and are, are going to be ostracized and, and uh, put on the outs. And in that story, uh, Joseph, uh, bless his heart, as you learn to say in the South, uh, you know, he, he doesn't leave her. He, he stays married to her. You know, I mean, uh, he, stands stays, by her. he stands by her and they, they end up having to go to Bethlehem to be counted in the census. And so they, they go to the city. And, and I think in Joseph's, uh, you know, in the telling of the story, it's like uh, the idea is uh, m- maybe it's time to move to the big city, you know, and, and to start a new life there. But uh, in that whole uh, encounter is uh, where you, you begin to, you know, to see the birth of Jesus uh, where uh, he, uh, he didn't, uh, he's not born in a palace. He's born out in a stable. Right. And uh, one of the Latin American authors that I've been reading, uh, he suggests that uh, in that culture, it, it, you know, he had, uh, Joseph had a lot of family. Mary had a lot of probably distant relatives that lived there. So it wasn't like uh, they go to a place and nobody wants to have them come in. But it was during this time of census, and so there's no room. There literally isn't any room at the end. I mean, hey, I wish you could stay, uh, primo, you know, cousin or whatever, but there's just nowhere you can stay. So finally somebody says, hey, well, we'll put you up here in this stable, and you know. Uh, that's what we've got. That's, that's it. And so, so, so Jesus, here's the God of the universe that, that that's the way he enters the world. And, and, uh, uh, the shepherds are scandalous because they're unclean. You know, they're they're the lowest of the lowest on this on this uh, for, for religious people. You know, uh, shepherds were not desirable. You know, it, it, it was just how does God decide He's going to uh, uh, reveal Himself 
to that group of folks and, and let them be the, and even become the analogy, I'm, I'm the shepherd, I'm the good shepherd, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's a, quite a scandalous kind of connection. Uh, and then the, the Magi come, and uh, this is where the political drama shows up, where Herod is... Uh, is threatened by the uh, the rumors of a birth of a of a king. He's the only king around, you know. He, he doesn't want another king, and uh, in the background of Roman occupation, right? So there, there's all that kind of drama. Well, so so the idea that Jesus and his family have to flee, okay? And I love what Ray Bakke, uh says, you know, that uh, before Jesus ever had a chance to die for the children of the world. A group of children in Galilee uh, had to die for him, you know, and and that's just that that sums up the, this drama that is like, oh my gosh, you know, and 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 then uh, you study that, and and what uh, you find out is, a lot of historians and, and theologians will say there is no evidence that that infanticide ever happened, right. It's a challenge to the historicity yeah, yeah. of the so, story. You know, I don't know. There's, I, I don't know. This is I, we can't really prove that. But then you go to Latin America, and in Argentina, in Chile, in Mexico, and there's uh, this idea of the desaparecidos. You know, the disappeared, where story after story of regimes uh, murdering and and creating genocide, not only in Latin America, all over the world. And those stories are erased, you know? So I have absolutely no right. problem believing that that, uh, you and know... in this day of technology, <laughs> the story could be forgotten. Yes, yes. Certainly 20 centuries ago. Yeah, exactly. So, so again, that whole thing is wrapped in like that. It, 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 it's really unbelievable. So, so to say God identifies with the immigrant, you know, uh, those that are having to migrate... Uh, and then uh, ends up, uh, and, and, and I love the way it's described in, uh, in, in, in the Gospels that uh, Joseph really is told by the angel, you know, to go back. It's safe to go back, but he, you know, I'm not going to go back to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem. I, I'm going to go back to Nazareth. That's the safest place for my family to be. So they move back to this little pueblito, you know, where uh, they... Uh, you know, that's where Jesus is raised as a carpenter. Well, the word for carpenter is laborer, okay? And so the image that he has this cool carpet, carpentry uh, <laughs> yeah. workshop. Running out to Lowe's or Home Depot. Yeah, with his, uh, you know, with his ponytail and his leather, uh, you know, very hipster uh, apron and making fine furniture for the people of the city. Uh, you know, it, it's more likely that he, he might have even been like a day laborer, you know. Uh, there's a lot of construction that the Roman Empire is doing that uh, that is happening uh, even with uh, religious uh, uh, leaders of the day, uh, buildings that they're constructing. So so that work of a day laborer, uh, so, so when you think about now you come to Luke chapter 4, and uh, it, uh, it, uh, they asked Jesus to read the scroll of Isaiah 61, and that's the launching of his public ministry. Uh, day labor, carpenter, scandalous <laughs> birth uh, comes Refugee. from all of that, right? And, and he says, 
the Spirit of the Lord is on me, you know, for God has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, you know. And he goes on with that litany of the prisoner and the blind. And, and interestingly, Isaiah 61 doesn't talk about the blind. That's the one uh, description that's in, found in Luke chapter 4 that's not in not Isaiah. And what you, what you, uh, what I've had to conclude after reading uh, the Gospels and, and and studying the life of Jesus is that one of his main um, struggles and 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 uh, uh, kind of um, main commitments in his ministry was to deal with the blindness of the religious leaders. Right, that's that's the blindness I think he had Maybe to deal with. Maybe why it features so prominently yeah. in the gospel stories. Yeah, is is blindness as a concept, physically and yeah. uh, as a analog? As an analog to to um, you know how uh, the very people who should have gotten it, who should have seen, uh, are missing the main point. You know, they're 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 not quite getting it, but. Uh, so then, you know, he preaches that sermon and uh, or reads that scripture and he launches his ministry. And the very first thing he does is he goes out to gather up a team to accomplish that mission. Now, if I was God, okay, and if I was Jesus, I would say, okay, this is big stuff. I mean, I'm about to launch a movement that is going to be around 2,000 years from now and maybe much longer and Got to get the right leaders. So think about all the leadership books that we have today. Yes. And, Which one of those did right, he pull off the shelf exactly? Right, right. And and so what does he do? He says, you know, like I, I would have said, okay, let's go to Jerusalem, take a day trip, you know, and let's go talk to all the all the brightest students of all the rabbi, and let's find the ones that really, you know, are walking with God and and all. But what he does is he says, I am going to find a crew of indigenous leaders from the community that are moldable, that are humble, that are good, you know, that I see some potential in. So he creates this incredible team of leaders from the place of Galilee, from uh, from that region. You know, he doesn't go out and 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 most of us, you know, what we witness in missions is we got to import somebody you know, or, or export uh, leadership. But here Jesus does it right from there. And so he builds that team, and um, and then, uh, y- you know, uh, then he demonstrates in his whole life his commitment to the Samaritan, to the poor, to the widow, to the orphan. Uh, and uh, he tells that story, the kingdom, Right uh, is uh, the prominent theme of Jesus's preaching, and um, and all, all of that uh, reinforces over and over again. You know this idea that God puts uh, the poor at the center, but then the cross, I think, becomes the crown jewel. Right in my in my um, kind of reflection, Jesus here. Yeah, is is what happens is uh, in 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 um, in um, Hebrews. It, it, it says that uh, Jesus was crucified outside the gate of the city, you know. So again, if I'm God and I want to make sure to connect the the continuity of Judaism to this new covenant and new movement, why don't we 
uh, mirror the sacrificial lamb right there in the city, in the, in the city of Shalom, close to the temple, you know, where people can make absolutely no, no there'd be no misgiving. This is a continuation. This is like part of this thing that I've come to do through the Jewish people. But what he does is he says, uh, yeah, we're going to, we're going to, uh, he, he will lay down his life as the lamb uh, of God who came, comes to forgive the sins of the world, but he's going to be crucified outside of the city gate in a place called Golgotha. And it is a, a place where the Roman Empire, uh, they're the ones that administer uh, this horrible, horrible uh, torture and execution in form of death. And why did God choose that form? You know, why why that? You know, no charge of the light brigade, no big noble battle here. Yeah, and and it's I think it's the idea that uh, again, where we have we have um, I call it the sanitizing of our story, where there are three crosses symmetrical. You know, every every Easter yes. uh, bulletin is like that, but the reality is there's hundreds of crosses. And bodies uh, buried in shallow graves. It was very unusual for somebody to actually take a body down and put them in a tomb. Yeah, just like the story. discarded. Yeah, discarded. So that's why the place of the skull, right? And so at this very scandalous uh, place, God says, this is where I'm going to do my best work. This is where I'm going to declare and put the stake in the ground that I'm going to uh, be the sacrifice for every single person that has ever felt discarded, lost, uh, been, uh, you know, um, treated with injustice. And, and I'm going to declare that God is on your side, you know, and uh, he tells that to the, one of the thieves, you know, that uh, is wanting to listen. And, uh, but on that cross, uh, that, that story is, uh, is, is just, unmistakable, right? God's for the poor. God's for the uh, scandalous, uh, uh, the sinner, for the most far out and unlovable. And uh, so that, that, that whole theology that, that is, uh, you know, kind of culminates in the cross. But then here's, here's the other little piece, okay, and I'll stop here because I, I could go on for a long, well, long time. Hey, you've taken us all the way <laughs> from the beginning to yeah. uh, the... No, no, the New Testament. But but okay. So Jesus in in uh, b- before he ascends, you're away in Jerusalem, and then I want you to go to uh, Judea, uh, uh, Samaria, and then to the uh, uh, to the ends of the world. And and I, I I when I read that, given everything we've just seen in his life and ministry and his um, declaration, proclamation about his commitment to the marginalized of the poor, to me, how I read that is to say, look, uh, even in the ends of the world, you're going to find the marginalized. You're going to find it here in Jerusalem. You're going to find them in Judea. You're going to find them in Samaria. Maybe they're the the best example, but, but wherever we go, we are to always go and reflect this God who uh, 
uh, is always looking for the outsider. They found us. Yeah, exactly. And who nobody else is looking for. You know? I this mean, is the Camino yeah, of Jesus. Yeah, that's it. That's it. You Take know? that to the ends of the earth. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so, I, I mean, I, I love the story. I think um, the, the few times that I have been so frustrated with Christianity— Right, uh, the expressions and how we talk about it, and how we, the stories that we tell, the narrative that's become the dominant narrative, uh, and 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 just uh, you know you hear in frustration of activists and others who say, man, I ain't gonna serve that white Jesus, you know, I'm not gonna, you know, Christianity is just, I I think there's no more radical story uh, of uh, of God than what we find. In the scripture, but we don't read it with the lens yeah. that uh, we're talking about, and uh, so. Well, I I was talking to you earlier, uh, Noel, about I have a passion for India. Yeah, so you want to yeah. talk about the impoverished? There's, yeah, there's yeah. a crowd there. Yes, yes. Uh, I've been there many times. Some of my most impactful journeys, and everyone is impactful, uh, took me to Kolkata. Yeah, I uh, I visited. Years ago, when Mother Teresa was still alive, yeah. uh, her her place of ministry, and actually went into her her apartment where mm. she had on the whitewashed walls a very simple Spartan yeah. kind of a place, but she she had just scriptures like this mm. uh, about the poor yeah. that she had written or had someone write on yeah. the walls yeah. uh, in blue lettering on the white wall these words of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll never forget standing in that room, mm. this little place where she lived, yeah. and. When asked why why these verses are why have you decorated this your home this way, she said, "Well, because I I want to be surrounded by the words of Jesus, mm-hmm. which draw me mm-hmm. to my calling here." Yeah. Well, if you go outside and to her famous house of to her, but I mean the Sisters yeah. of Charity, this right. order she started, this home for the dead and dying, and so on. It it's so um, difficult for people in Western civilization or mm-hmm. people who grew up in the States to find themselves in a place like that where there's so much human need. I mean, there's, there's no there's no curtain that hides you from it. Right. And I have to struggle when I go there and yeah. have always, in a way, how did she find her way from Europe there and drawn right. into this? And my, long, my little story here is she just famously repeated over and over again, when I, when I touch these people, the ones who are destitute on the street, they're dying, they're left uh, just abandoned really because of their disease or they don't have family or they have no means. I mean, it's so destitute. She says, when I, when I interact with them, I know I'm interacting with Jesus. Mm-hmm. She quotes famously from the Lord's yeah. description of the judgment. When you did yeah. the least of these, you did it to me. And we, we so often want to drive by that or reinterpret it. But for her, it seemed to be a literal experience with Jesus. When mm-hmm. I am kneeling by this brother who is in such uh, impoverished state, I'm actually kneeling by Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That premise we understand intellectually, but it's so hard to translate it into the uh, the luxury of Christian experience sometimes in my country. Yeah, I'm asking you now, 
with that kind of frame of reference, you've done an elegant job, really. You know, you should you should preach some there, Noel, uh, <laughs> uh, unpacking the scripture in this long way. Yeah. And while we can understand your journey through the scripture and who could quarrel with all of the biblical illustrations you've given and so on, and yet sometimes when it comes to actually acting out on those truths, mm-hmm. uh, there's a tendency to say, well, that's not really what we're about. Uh, we should be about building our church or yeah. or... Ours is an eternal gospel, and what really matters is that people get, you've described it as a green card mm-hmm. for the world to come, but that uh, we make sure that people get saved. And mm-hmm. I, as someone who's recently lost close members of my family, man, that whole idea of eternal life mm-hmm. is so real. As an old guy, I mean, you're just a young buck. It's an old oh, man like me. Oh, no, I'm, no, I'm, no. I'm more and more conscious of the reality that, you know what? My life is more than this world. So yeah. I, I totally affirm the primacy of a witness for someone to find eternal life. Yeah. But at the same time, what do you say to people who say, well, that's really the main thing? And not to worry about all this broken world. The poor you're going to have with you always, Jesus said. There's another verse to quote. Right. What do right. you say in response yeah. to that emphasis? Yeah. Well, again, I, I think that the only... Um, way that I've been able to understand the story is to say, Jesus tells me, follow me. And so let me, I told you I was in a car accident last week. Yes. Uh, and uh, I have to say it was, it was really my fault. I, I ran a red light, uh, cause I'm, I'm in a, in this new city where, um, there's a red arrow. Mm-hmm. And a green light to go forward. The green light goes on. So in my brain, I say it's. I can go right. I can go. Yeah. I can go left there. You know. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I make this left on a, on a red arrow, and uh, and um, I go through the intersection as blind because uh, there's an overpass. You can't see the cars. Mm-hmm. Guy hits me uh, 40 miles an hour on the passenger side, and uh, thankfully. Uh, he's okay, you know. I'm just so grateful that he was not injured. But I go spinning and end up, up pinned up against a couple of poles, and uh, but I'm I'm, vir- you know, virtually uninjured. I I uh, I've been able to walk away, and and uh, I did you know did all the exams to make sure that there was nothing uh, serious, but just a bad whiplash as you can imagine. But totaled my car. And I, I, I go to uh, the that the, the doctors and all that's one thing, uh, but I have to go pick out another car, which is horrible. I can't think of a worse thing to do. You know, you're going to spend money on something that's going to depreciate the moment it takes. You know, you get it out the door, and and uh, it's it's one of those necessary evils. You know, in my mind, but uh, it was very interesting. A young man was helping me to you know, sales guy. And he had a young woman with him. And she was, um, uh, you know, a- apprenticing, learning uh, about how to do this. And she just shadowed him the whole time, watched what kind of questions he asked and how he did the whole, I mean, she hardly said a word, but she was right there engaged in that whole thing. And I could see them talking to each other and he's explaining, you know, here's the deal all the way through. And, and I thought, man, uh, I wish that's the way we form leaders in, in the church. That's 
kind of what you see Jesus doing. You know, that's uh, that. That's what I, I love about uh, Luke chapter five because you see the 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 scripture reading, and then the whole rest of the chapter. He's walking with his disciples on this little journey, and he encounters a leper and a person who's paralyzed, and and uh, Levi, and uh, you know, he's he's, he's showing them. He's the showing way. them just like that uh, guy did with that woman. And 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 I, and I think uh, uh, that whole uh, process of uh, of uh, how we um, how we uh, form folks, but but the, but then it's like um, if we are not e, uh, immersed, or if we have no knowledge of this alternate story, what we're doing is we're passing on a form of uh, leadership and theology that's never going to get us to where we need to be, you know, in terms of addressing the realities of our world because we're, 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 uh, we're relying on a narrative that is so uh, irrelevant. I hate to say it that way, but I, I've just really come to, to struggle with how... Um, uh, how I, I I think I think for most of us uh, our experience of theology is one that uh, will not allow us to reach the world as it is. Okay, a world in destitute uh, circumstances with great great need, and uh, and that that uh, that concerns me. You know, and 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 the thing that's so interesting is that the story is so clear. You know, and, and, and why. Why aren't we hearing that uh, to the degree that it, you know uh, that, that it needs to be told that way? Well, that that whole idea of of the present power of the gospel to bring life mm-hmm. for the world present, not just in the world to come. It's both. It's right, not an either right, or. Right. Uh, has informed so much of your life. Yeah. And so uh, your ten years at the. Uh, Christian Community Development Association versus was was well that... actually uh, fourteen years uh, as a staff person, and but I was at the very first conference, so thirty five years of, of history with the yeah. organization. Mm-hmm. But ten years at the helm, I think. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. that that whole experience really is predicated on this kind of theology, isn't it? That mm-hmm. that there are solutions, there are things that the people of God can bring as they bring Jesus to a neighborhood yeah, that yeah. actually change it holistically. Yeah. So give me a principle or two. If I yeah. was at my local church in my neighborhood, what should we be thinking about yeah. and doing? Yeah. Well, it, it, it's, it's where the, the very first uh, uh, principle that we talk about and teach, uh, whether it was CCDA or now, I, I talk a little bit more about incarnational development, it, it, it's that we we be present in the neighborhood that God's called us to uh, to minister. There's an important and, truth there that there's a sense that you were called to that place. Yeah, exactly. And and we we have no problem with that concept when it's a nice neighborhood, <laughs> okay. But the minute it is a challenging neighborhood, and we and I hear this over and over and over again. Yeah, I'm called to that neighborhood. But I don't have to live there because I just live a few minutes away, or I live, you know, I I'm, I spend ninety percent of my time there. But I I just I have a really, you know, and and God will lead people, okay, the way He's going to lead them. But I I just have seen so many 
examples of uh, how the process goes badly when we're not there in solidarity with the people. Uh, and, um, and then the model of Jesus is that model, you know, of in, in Galilee, in, in, in the place, right? And Nehemiah, same thing as uh, those are the, the two examples I use, uh, all the time. And I, 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 I think that, um, uh, we have a regional model of church. We have a commuter model of church. We don't have a, a theology of place. Uh, there's a few good movements around the country that beyond just inner city, uh, you know, parish collective and a few other groups that are saying, hey, let's, you know, let's embrace our parish. And I think that's a great thing. Uh, but there, there is a, there's a real, real, um, uh, fear and disconnect when it talks about, uh, uh, more vulnerable neighborhoods because it's uh it's a little dangerous you know it's it's risky and and I think that um I think that's just been part of the ethos of of uh, CCDA for 30 something years and, and especially at the beginning when we started you know I mean you you were not going to come to CCDA if you didn't live in the neighborhood cuz cuz you people were going to call you out you know <laughs> Well, over the years, things began to evolve a little differently. And, and I, I think one thing that happened is that there was such a vacuum of a space where people who were concerned about justice or trying to make a transition out of more of a traditional kind of uh, church setting that wasn't engaged in, in, in hard places or among the poor, so they found themselves to this movement and, but I think a, a, a constant, a constant tension, and I think it's still going to be there, uh, if we keep preaching this message is that, um, is it really important that we live in the neighborhood? And, uh, I mean, I'm dealing with this in Mexico, in Mexico City, you know, uh, in, in, in other, other parts of Latin America where, uh, all of us want to, you know, protect our families and find the best situation for them. And, and boy, it's so, man, there's no possible way I could live right there. But, but, uh, there are thousands and thousands of pastors that are doing that in poor slums all over the world, you know, and, uh, and I think there's a power in that. And that's like the beginning principle. Uh, somehow we got to be close. You know, we got to be uh, you have to experience yeah. in common yeah. with the people that you're trying to reach. Yeah, you've used the word justice several times here. Yeah, uh, in Spanish, how would you say that? Justice. Uh, justicia. 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 Yeah. And and that's that's kind of a word that you know carved in stone over uh, courthouses and so on that yeah. we might have accepted as a kind of a noble thought. But right. today it seems to me like the word itself yeah. has become a dividing line, almost a political yeah. cudgel. People yeah. throw it around in different ways and sometimes yeah. uh, it's seen as a, f a red flag for for some other idea. When you use that word justice, and, and you have several times, and of course yeah. it's a biblical term, Yeah. what do you mean and, and why should yeah. we care about it? Yeah, um, I, I actually like uh, talking about uh, confronting or addressing injustice. Uh, that's kind of the way I talk about it more often because um, the, the concepts of, of, of the kingdom and shalom, right, is the, the, 
is it's a it's a state of where everything is is complete. Everything is functioning well relationally, economically, socially. Uh, there's a there's a uh, healthiness, right? There's a there's a it's it's, it's a, uh, a state of living in good community and being right with others and with God and uh, and so interestingly, the word uh, justice in English is found in the uh, uh, in the Bible very few times. Okay, uh, I think uh, in the King James, uh, less than twenty times is is the word justice uh, translated I'm, from the original language to English. Yes, and and normally in English, when we translate hadek, it's uh, this Hebrew word. It's uh, it's translated righteousness. Okay, now when you start looking at translations done by Westerners. Uh, and you read this word of being right with, you know, the, the whole implication of is where things are, are right and complete and whatever, you, you know, uh, it's uh, much more common to translate the word righteousness, which gives that vertical uh, kind of uh, dimension as the primary dimension. It drives the thinking towards my relationship to God. I need to be right. righteous with God. Right. And then uh, very few times do you see the word justice. Uh, and so that's why even the word is questionable for a lot of Christians because we don't hear it very often. Like in Hebrew, the Spanish word justicia has both meanings. There's, no, there's not one word for righteousness and one word for justice. It's the same word. Same word. So in a Spanish language Bible, yep. there would not be this dichotomy. No, no. And that's, that's a very... Now, we read into, you know, because again, our, the way we interpret Scripture and our own, the lens that we use and all, but the word, justicia, is only one word that can be translated most often, both righteousness and justice. The vertical relationship with God, the horizontal, which is the all of the law uh, summed up, you know, by Jesus, you know, love God, love your neighbor, and, and it's justicia. So a lot of times I, I don't like to use the word justice. I like to use the word justicia, even if it's in English uh, mm -hmm. kind of writing, because I want to be a little bit provocative to say I'm not just talking about social justice. I'm talking about the kind of justicia that is rooted in being right with God, and out of that right relationship with God, we obviously are going to treat our brothers and sisters, even those who are not like us, even those who are uh, now believing that, knowing that to be true, and doing it are two very different things. And, right. and I think we all struggle with living that out. But it's a holistic approach. Yeah, and, and absolutely. It's, it's all of that. Yeah. And you can't piecemeal it and yeah. just have one piece of it. You have to own the whole. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no I, think, I, I think we have a generation today. Here's one thing I'll say, that, um, that the, I believe the way they're going to come to Jesus is, is, is uh, when the, the church begins to talk about caring for creation. And, and uh, really, uh, you know, when God says that, he, that he's going to restore all of creation, 
and, and, and that creation is groaning and, and that, uh, that, you know, we're here to be stewards of everything that was created. Uh, you know, uh, we as evangelicals were very suspect of all that kind of language and, and syncretism of Native American theology or Latino theology, indigenous theology. But I, I think that uh, if you were to press most millennials today what they care about more than anything else, they're much more committed, even if they're Christians, they're more committed to recycling and right. and uh, social, uh, you know, uh, uh, ecological uh, mm-hmm. justice than they are to proselytizing. Right. You, you know? see that as a <laughs> as know? a moral imperative. In yeah, a way. yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. And, and and so so it may be that that uh, as we begin to um, to listen to our young folks a little bit that that have been captured by that. That, but, but, you know, again, um, what that challenges, the spirit of the age is, is money. Okay. The dominant spirit of our age is, um, a lot of money, you know, and capitalism has been baptized as this absolute vehicle of, uh, uh, almost godliness, right? Now, I think there's a lot of amazing things about capitalism, and I think we've got to be grateful for all of the insights that we get from from uh, this very powerful tool. But it cannot become our god, and it cannot be, you know. It, 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 and, and I think what happens is um, when we begin to make, uh, we, when we turn a blind eye. Here's the thing: idea of blindness again. You know, we're blind to the fact that our greed, you know, uh, many times uh, allows us to compromise an area of discipleship that uh, we're not willing to give up. By hearing you say that capitalism has lots in its favor, but it has to be mediated, as do all things in life. Absolutely. By a gospel lens. Don't let one supersede the other or uh, don't allow the pursuit of things, which the scripture speaks of often, to overcome the pursuit of... Ossicia, yeah, for instance, yeah, uh, in in the world. All right, you you have had a front row seat in the evangelical world, even as you're reflecting on what you think yeah. uh, the future might be. You've had a front row seat. You you were invited uh, by President Obama to be uh, part of his uh, faith based uh, office of partnerships with uh, mm-hmm. faith communities and neighborhoods and so on. I think uh, there you are. Uh, uh, Matt's pulled up a, a photo. When I was a young man, well, a long time ago. No, it's yeah. not that long ago. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I mean, you, you've had a a voice and a presence outside of the local church. You planted a church in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've worked in Christian ministries, but you've also been seen outside of those uh, venues as someone to reckon with when it comes to issues about immigration and all of, all of that. So as, as you're looking at our world today... Uh, what do you think uh, about what's happening next or what's going on about us? Did you, uh, do you believe that there is a footprint that people of faith should have in the public square? Should they be leaning uh, towards President Trump uh, now uh, out of the White House or President Biden in the White House? How do you interpret that? How do you navigate that? What would you say to others listening today about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think there's a lot of, um, I mean, very interesting, but... but um, um, 
usually, and this is a characterization, okay, but uh, most folks that I know that have been working in uh, very urban, tough, uh, vulnerable, poor communities for a long time, you know, they, we, we tend to be, and I include myself in this, in that category, we tend to be a lot more uh, socially um, more progressive, right? Even though I would say I'm, I'm very conservative in many, many ways theologically, but uh, like in Chicago, uh, that has a large uh, African American population, large Latino population, and a large, uh, I would say, liberal white population. You know, uh, to say you're a Christian and you're a Democrat is uh, there's no issue to that. Many parts of the country, uh, you couldn't, you can't really do that. You know, you'd have a really hard time because the, uh, uh, you know, the kind of the mental kind of exercise that you have to do is like when I was on the council for uh, Obama was uh, a priority of the Obama administration that was stated, okay, is that we are going to work at reducing the numbers of abortion and the need for abortion, okay? Uh, we're going to protect the rights of women to make that decision, and, and, and the government's going to support that, and uh, and it's already law, okay? But, uh, but um uh, but we're, but we recognize that abortion is, it can be devastating and, and, and it can have, uh, and it can, like immigration or any other issue, right? There are many causes that create the, the need for a woman to have to make a decision that, uh, that maybe wouldn't, they wouldn't make if, the, if circumstances were different. Uh, but, but again, it, it, it's, uh, it's it's a it's a deal where um, the the you know you, you have to make imperfect choices of alignment with uh, uh, with what kind of, you know who you're going to vote for. If you're going to be a good citizen, it's it's really easy. And I know a lot of people who say I'm going to write in Jesus every time. <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to vote for a Democrat or a Republican. And I understand that completely because I think neither party fully represents the agenda of Jesus or the kingdom of God. So, uh, but, um, but I, I, I do feel like, um, uh, if you're in a context where, um, you know, the military pumps in a lot of money <laughs> to your community, where you know there is a lot of every town uh, has a story, has a yeah, context. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and and where uh, there is that uh, support for uh, family and uh, the resources to care for uh, children who are born out of wedlock and all, and uh, you know there. Th- then you add the moral. Uh, um, conviction, which I believe that every single life is valuable. Okay. So, uh, how do you, how do you, uh, I mean, of course, you're going to uh, hold abortion as the number one priority, uh, uh, you know, uh, an ethic for life. Many of us will say, well, let's have an ethic for all life, you know, that immigrant kid in a cage on the border and, the black kid that, that didn't have a good education and, and uh, you know, and the young 
uh, unborn child as well, you know, that uh, maybe uh, is, is in danger of being aborted or, or, or has been aborted. So, so it, it, we, we live in this incredible tension in this world that uh, in this life, it, the journey is going to be hard. Camino's hard. Camino's going to be hard. But am I hearing you say that in a world like this, where they're not always clean, simple, straight lines, that you have elected to to work as you can, even with people with whom you may disagree, to achieve some end you could share. For instance, we want to save unborn lives. Right, right, right. Yeah, and and you know, really, I I do, I do, and I say this. I mean, I, I envy. Somebody who can just simplify faith to the degree where everything is black and white, and 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 then maybe that's a, a uh, it's a much easier way to yeah. to see and interpret faith. But I I I've found it to be very difficult to do that in the midst of a lot of the hurt and pain and the suffering that um, I find myself in, because uh, uh, I, I I do tend to be around the poor a lot, you know, and so that store, those stories are not, um, not easy to always. It's not something you're watching on television. It's something you've seen up close and personal. So it motivates you to develop partnerships that might cross lines for others. I I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it seems to me that Jesus uh, spent a fair amount of time going to dinner parties yeah. Uh, with both parties, so to speak. <laughs> I mean, right. If Zacchaeus can have him at his yeah. house, yeah. can he also go to the house of Simon the Pharisee? Yeah. Yes, he does both. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, um, I, I think I can I can share this. Here, here's my latest okay. kind of reflection as I'm as I'm thinking about, um, especially the some of the tougher tensions that we have around abortion and all, but. Um, but what if, you know, the Bible talks about divorce a lot, okay? What if the government said, hey, we're not going to authorize divorce? Well, and that's the way it was in yeah. many states for right. many years. Yeah. Can't do it. You're not going to get, we're not going to, you, you cannot do it. And and uh, and you, you're just going to have to find a way to make it through, you know? And now, obviously, what does that do? Uh, there are abusive situations. There are, you know, very unhealthy situations, and there are. I mean, there are some cases where, uh, yeah, people uh, walk into marriage very casually, and they don't understand. And they, you know, you, you just get married, and it's, you get divorced. Not a big deal. And you know, you see that in the Hollywood culture, you know, sure. and all that. But but it's but what if what if uh, what if the state were you know were to say that's how we're going to handle that? The Bible is just as clear about uh, divorce as probably I don't think abortion's mentioned in the Bible, okay? But divorce sure is, and so we're gonna we're going to uh, outlaw it. Outlaw it, and you're going to have to deal with it. You know, I think people would. Uh, and obviously, we have changed. We have adjusted our culture, our Christian norms, okay? Because we know a lot of Christians that are divorced today, you know? And uh, so, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, and, and I, for one, I'd say uh, you, you got to listen to people's story. You got to understand what's going on. It's very easy to judge and, and to just put a blanket kind of, you know, uh, 
judgment over somebody for a decision that they take or don't take. And so I, I believe that God is working in people's hearts. I believe that God, is, the Holy Spirit is working in people's lives. And, and I think we've got to be faithful to, to be a community that upholds the standards of the kingdom of God. And, and, and I think there's so many more that are, that have to do with right uh, behavior towards others and kind behavior and generosity and 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 inclusion of those that are not included and and uh, and against these there is no law. Okay. Uh, I I hear your uh, your framing of there are issues yeah. and there's a whole plate of issues yeah. and sometimes we give in on this one yeah. while we try and hold fast on that one. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, abortion is a very personal thing yeah. because I'm that guy that was conceived out of wedlock yeah. by a woman who couldn't speak English, wow. immigrant to this country. Wow. Ultimately, wow. I was relinquished for adoption in yeah. the drama of my bringing. But my birth mother, who I met when I was 58 years old for the first time, mm. uh, told me a compelling narrative uh, about how she went to a doctor. Think about this. This was before abortion was legal. Yeah, yeah. But she went to a doctor's office in 1952, the year of my birth, wow. for an abortion mm. for $25. And uh, she described how the, the physician, who was a woman doctor, was very wow. kind and sweet and trying to offer her a way out because in her context, yeah. she was in a desperate situation. So I, I'm very sympathetic to the yeah. drama. My birth mother told me that as she was there talking to the doctor, she said, I just couldn't do it. She said, I was terrified about my life. I didn't know what I was going to do. But these were her words. I knew what I would not do. Mm-hmm. I would not take your life. I'm only interjecting that yeah. to say, for me, abortion's a, it's yeah. a hard issue because it's a little bit like slavery. There is no middle ground. I, yeah. I can't say to you, well, if you if you believe that it's all right to own another person, well, I have to understand your context. Right, right. Uh, well, I got, you've got that plantation. How, how, right. You couldn't afford right. to pay those people to do it. I mean, uh, but I, I won't. I won't own another person, so it's my choice. Right. Abortion is a little bit in that category. Uh, our society has to make some decisions. It yeah. has by law, even though I would not subscribe to that law. Right. But to the point of in a world where people have landed differently than I, yeah. Can I align myself with someone who'll say, "I'm going to save lives." Yeah. And yeah. if you'll save some with me, we're going to save those. Mm-hmm. I can't solve everything. Right. Right. Yeah. No. Well, you. You had had so much traction, so much voice in the immigrant front, uh, in the houses of power, in on the streets, uh, in the poorest of poor. I mean, and now you have a passion for Latin America, and you're bridging partners to uh, help span that divide, helping organize and uh, develop relationships in the states to help partner with ministries in Latin America that right. can fulfill some of this terrific vision of kingdom life mm-hmm. that has so many good outcomes in the here and now as well as for eternity. I, I mean, I just want to acknowledge, Noel, I could talk to you for hours about so much, mm-hmm. but I want to uh, also ask you this question as a way of authenticating your voice, because yeah. when you left the CCDA yeah. in 2018, you walked out with a bit of a uh, a shadow, because there were voices being raised about your leadership there and so on, and you decided to step off the main stage. And and I just want to ask you to explain a little bit for anyone listening. Yeah. Now, is this guy 
uh, he's talking about justice. He's talking about all these glorious uh, concepts of kingdom life and Jesus. Is he legit giving that drama, which is really a personal drama, and it's not uh, something that's well-known. But I want to give you a chance to speak to that. Tell us a little bit about your journey out of the CCDA and how you're feeling about it now looking backward and where you are right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it obviously was uh, <clears throat> one of, one of the, the more difficult chapters of my life and, and uh, uh, very, very public um, uh, kind of a, um, of a confrontation, okay, of my leadership uh, by, uh, by some people that were associated with CCDA. And, um, and so, um, uh, so again, uh, the Camino is hard. <laughs> it's a very hard intersection. Yeah, very, very hard intersection. But yeah, I, I think uh, I, I, uh, there's a, probably the first thing I'd want to say is that um, I think that for for many many years uh, I, I think I led CCDA very well, and I think I, I was able to take a a difficult mantle uh, uh, to support John Perkins and who was the founder who's the founder of this movement. And uh, when I stepped into CCDA, it was uh, mostly a black and white movement. By that you mean ethnically? Ethnically, yeah. Mm-hmm. Black leaders and white leaders coming together to do reconciliation and and to engage in Christian community development, what we've described, moving into a neighborhood and beginning to do development, church-based development. And uh, as uh, I came in, um, uh, really it was... Uh, was introducing another very strong emerging uh, group, the Latino community, which uh, brought a lot of distinctive uh, realities, but also uh, brought a little bit of tension, you know, mm-hmm. as well. And then uh, I, I remember making the decision uh, not too long into my presidency that uh, I, I remember reflecting in in the whole time I've been a part of CCDA, I'd never we'd never had a, a Native American speak at our conference, and uh, so I met a had a friend uh, that a lot of us knew, uh, Richard Twist, who uh, actually I, I've had him speak at my church. Yeah, he yes. died uh, a number of years ago uh, of a heart attack, uh, right the morning before the prayer breakfast. Uh, so. Uh, in Washington, D.C., but Richard spoke, and it was a very, very impactful um, experience for our our association, and it, it really uh, opened up uh, an understanding that when we talk about injustice that, uh, and when we talk about um, the historical um, Kind of realities and the sins of our nation uh, that are often uh, talked about, and especially in CCDA at the time, that that kind of uh, that story began with slavery. Uh, but now, now all of a sudden, we had an, an added narrative. Uh, you know, this uh, uh, the native uh, uh, elimination and yeah, all yeah. That, uh, that that incredible story. And then we had other leaders, uh, Mark Charles and others that began to become a part of the movement that uh, did a great job of helping us to grow in that area. 
Asian American leaders coming along that uh, uh, they're the model minority, you know, that uh, I just saw a a quote from Jeremy Lin, basketball player that's That's speaking out, you know, saying, hey, we're not going to do that no more. You know, we're... We have a story too. Yeah, and we're being uh, excluded. We're invisible. And so... Uh, that voice began to be elevated, and um, uh, women began to take a very prominent role in the leadership of CCDA, and um, and then um, and then with the immigration piece, uh, it was just a few years in uh, where the Dream Act was introduced, and uh, I was representing um, CCDA on a council in D.C. that was uh, this immigration table of evangelicals and uh, a lot of debate about um, whether uh, we wanted to just support this one little legislation that had to do with these young children that were brought into the country, or should we not divide all these policies but go for comprehension uh, reform? And I And I knew our constituency. And I said, if I come start talking about immigration reform and uh, as a totality, there isn't an understanding of that. But if I start talking about the children, that's our mission. You know, we want to help our children be empowered and we want to help them go to college and to get a job. They can't do that because of their immigration status. And so really became one of the first groups to really uh, say, we're standing behind the DREAM Act. And I was really proud of CCDA because they they came out in strong support of that and so was able to help lead all of this. Well, all that to say that um, the level of complexity that began to e- evolve uh, in, in our movement was, was really large. And, and then uh, the other thing that I really felt strongly about is that we we needed to include millennial and younger leaders because uh, uh, there was a a little a generational bit of, yeah generational atrophy, atrophy yeah. exactly and I said look if we don't make a change we're not going to be around in a few years well you add that to the mix and uh, and um, there. I, I think the level of complexity. I, I don't think I was uh, I was really uh, prepared for what all of that was going to bring. You you add to that uh, the fact that I am a very broken leader individual. You know, I talked a little bit about my past, uh, the wounds of of uh, really um, not uh, having really having. Uh, uh, as I've reflected, had not learned to deal well with conflict. And the one place that um, I determined that I was really going to address this uh, was in my family, my personal family. My my wife of uh, 37 years, my kids. And and so, I I mean, I, I have to say that uh, the blessing, having gone through everything we went through, um, you know, a few years ago with CCDA, was that uh, I, I cannot even imagine going through that without my wife and her support and my children. And 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 so uh, somehow, by the grace of God, I was able to to um, almost um, recognize that. 
that's the one area that I wasn't going to uh, uh, see implode on me. Right. Okay, but in my ministry leadership, you you, you bring uh, complexity, diversity, uh, some personal wounds, and and uh, a, a leadership style that's also not like everybody else's. I'm a very extroverted, outgoing, and and for some, I think, uh, you know, I think all of us are going to have people that are drawn to how we lead and, sure, and, sure. and those that don't. But but I think what one of the things that, that uh, uh, contributed to um, um, what ended up being uh, an accusation that I uh, created a toxic work environment. Yes, uh, people who worked there, yeah, some, some who yeah. objected to your whole yeah. management style. Yeah. And and some of the decisions and priorities of ministry that I was placing on immigration. Okay, that was another thing. You know, I, you shouldn't be involved uh, over here at the border. You shouldn't be doing some For of this. For some, that was a diversion. From yeah, the it was. A, yeah, it was a diversion. So clearly, there was a, there was a, um, you know some conflict over that. But um, I um, I felt like I kept the board uh, updated on all that was going on and I tried to do that the best I could. But uh, there, there, uh, uh, we got to a point where, uh, in my mind, that uh, I had to make some changes for my own ability to lead, okay? And so I, uh, I, had, uh, I dismissed a couple of key staff people, and that created a a really difficult uh, uh, kind of backlash. And the backlash that happened, that was, uh, you know, two years before the my exit in Chicago, that really was the beginning of the end in terms of uh, feeling like uh, I had the confidence of the board, the conflict was out. Uh, I think there were probably a lot of people that on the board and uh, that uh, uh, if, if they had their way, they probably would have made the change at that point. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're this strong uh, group of relational people and there's a few key leaders that are fighting for my leadership. And so let's, you know, we got to make sure Noel stays there, you know. Well, would, would you say that in all of it, you've described a very stressful oh. uh, melting pot oh, in, in yeah. that, yeah. Noel, and, and what you've self-disclosed about your own brokenness yeah. of yeah. places. Yeah. But would you say that Maybe part of what happened after the charges were raised yeah. or, or the controversies began to bubble up yeah. and people began to ask questions based on who said what and yeah. so on, yeah. that your own responses to that controversy, yeah. looking back, you thought, oh, I might have played that differently. Oh, totally. Because that, that may have caused yeah. uh, the, the walkout. Yeah. No, I, I think from that point, um, uh, and, and this is where... Um, if if, if uh, I honestly can say that uh, I would go through this whole thing again uh, in terms of to end up where I'm at today, what God's done in my life, where I believe I am today. Uh, the one thing that I, I uh, wish I could have done, and, and, you know, this is dangerous speculation because we can kind of go back, uh, but the... During my time in Chicago, um, we had made the decision. I had already resigned uh, from um, my role as president, 
and uh, and the decision was made. Let's wait till afterwards to. Talk because it was it. a big conference. Yeah, big conference. We want to we want to honor John Perkins. It was our 30 year anniversary. Okay, so uh, it was. Let's not have a sideshow. Yeah, let's not make it about this. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll do that later. But um, but uh, during that conference, um, there was an effort where there was um, you know there was flyers and social media kind of attacks and. And really, a a, uh, a organized uh, effort to say to the CCDA board, "Get rid of Noel," you know, and uh, needs to go. Uh, not knowing that I had already, already decided I, to see, step out. Yeah, like. yeah, I, I'm already I'm already made that decision. Well, um, I was the last person to address the conference, right? And you can imagine all of the how difficult. Uh, that that uh, uh, was, but um, I, I wish I had just gotten up and said, "Look, there's some accusations that uh, have come out, and there's specifically there's some uh, you know some individuals uh, that uh, have really been hurt by my leadership. I, I I'm sorry, you know. I, I apologize from." Yeah, I, I I'm not a perfect leader. I'm you know I'm uh, I've made a lot of mistakes in my leadership, but uh, for the things that I caused uh, pain in your life, I, I apologize. And um, but and, and I and I I, I I wish I had just been strong enough to just say that's the right thing to do. But I was kind of under a little bit of a gag order. Don't talk about this. You know, I mean, this is not what we're not going to respond to this. You know, uh, I think that would have diffused uh, because, again, I wasn't at that point. I, I knew it was time to go. I, 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 you know, it might have made things a little easier and less bumpy walking out. Yeah. Yeah. But but the fact was the the uh, public um, right. uh, kind of um, um, effort. It already happened. The charges were lobbed in yeah, public. exactly. And you were not there in a position able to give an apology in public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we are today. Yeah, yeah. And and I would say um, the, the reality is uh, incredible uh, pressure, a lot of um, anxiety. I, I would say, you know, uh, probably, uh, you know, not in the best state of mind. And so... Uh, so yeah, I I really regret uh, many things uh, of how I handled the last two years of that conflict. And and if I could, and I've I've talked to our board chair, I've talked to others. If I could, you know, if I could just do that over, oh my gosh! I, I, really, the the best word to describe Jim is to say, you know, I'm I was embarrassed. You know, I I just like. I I, uh, I I think how could I allow myself to be sucked into that kind of behavior? And so uh, I, I know for many people uh, this is uh, maybe too little, too late. And and but but I do say I I deeply apologize for anybody that I hurt. Uh, and uh, uh, but but I think the 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 hardest thing has been just to forgive myself. You know, clearly, uh, the last two years, uh, 
even being here with you today and telling the story uh, publicly, uh, I do pray that it will be a way to uh, bring some healing for uh, for others, but maybe more importantly for myself. So, ah, which brings us back to the jubilee. Yeah, it is the the way of Jesus that Camino yeah. is to have a fresh start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Noel, you have done so much good, oh. and so much good has happened by your hands, oh. and a whole new chapter in the Camino Alliance has opened. Uh, and more good is being done. We are so thankful that you came to the table today at All That to Say. So yeah. proud to know you. Oh, thank you. It's great to have had the opportunity to be here with you. If there was something you were going to, uh, just to say out loud about that Camino uh, of Jesus, yeah. and you just want to, to just say something to somebody listening today or saying, I'm not sure that hard way is for me. What would you say to them? Yeah. I, I think that being a Christian in the United States is one of the more difficult things that there is. How so? Because we are, are our privilege, our wealth, um, our self-perception, are all the things that create the kind of pride that Jesus says is going to be the thing that's going to make it difficult for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, so in our world standing, I really believe that um, to be a Westerner, to be, and, uh, to be, uh, uh, be given the privilege in this world to live the way we live is one of our greatest liabilities to being an authentic follower of Christ. So I think that engagement with the Matthew 25 crowd is, uh, is what can maybe bring us to a point of salvation. And, and, and when I say that, I mean, you know, uh, we, we can be, we can, we can have the knowledge of what salvation is and the formula and we could have made that prayer, but we're still not living the kind of life that's bringing fulfillment. And, and I think that comes when we, uh, that kenosis, you know, that emptying of ourselves. Uh, I, 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 kind of a little formula is a gratitude and justicia. Uh, brings this level of generosity at every level, not just financially, but in the way we treat people. The grace of the heart. Yeah, and how we interact with the world, how we, how we uh, recognize that uh, we have too much. You know, uh, I left a house in Chicago, 2,700 square feet, in the, in, in, you know, and, and we brought, we left that house, basically gave everything away, all the furniture. We, you know, we just walked away from that and moved into a little 1,000 square foot uh, apartment in, in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, and, uh, and we're not the worst for it. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's something about even even when we think we're from the hood, even when when we're when we think we're, you know, we're we're living in this situation where, uh, we're we're not the wealthy, we're not the one percent. I mean, but we have so much, and and I, uh, the greatest joy I have today, is is just to uh, to say, how do I come alongside my brothers and sisters that are um, just trying to 
do this kingdom work in the part of the world that's so difficult and and advocate for folks to come alongside and be partners with them. And uh, so I, I'm really excited to give my life to that. I, I got a few years left, hopefully, and uh, I, I want to, I've got a lot of energy for that. And, uh, and it's because I, I, I think I've, I've been absolutely um, convinced that the grace of God uh, that, um, that redeemed Abraham and, and David and uh, Paul after his relational kind of stuff and Peter and, uh, you know, so many characters in the Bible, I, I believe that um, uh, regardless of um, whether or not I have any earthly position, uh, God has given me a mission and that's the mission that uh, I'm called to pursue now with uh, gratitude and uh, with uh, a, a deep sense of joy. You know, I, I, I'll, I think I'll end with this, if it's okay. Yes. Uh, uh, I love the book of Nehemiah uh, because it's it's an activist book, you know, community development, rebuild the walls and, you know, do the whole thing. But in the middle of the book of Nehemiah, uh, here's a politician who's also a kingdom person, and he stands up with Ezra to preach, and his message is, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Okay? Mm-hmm. Not, and uh, it's not what I expected him to preach about, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, justice and, you know, but he says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I think if I thank God for uh, one thing today is that I think he's restored that joy in my life just for walking with him, for being on the communion with him. And, and that, I think, uh, is worth whatever price uh, I have to pay to, uh, to be able to experience that. So, so fine. I know this is going to sound really cheesy, but I have to say it. Muchas gracias. De nada, muchas gracias. Sí, de nada. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.